welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. When I was younger, I, I loved the certainty of, of maths and sciences. I just, I, I love that there was an unchanging answer to the problem and it was completely independent of subjective opinion. That, that just, it, it thrilled my soul. So let me give you an example. And, and if you have to think a little bit, go ahead and pause the video before you give your answer. But here's the question. Here's a test for you. If Sally is riding a train leaving Toronto at 3 p.m., traveling at 120 kilometers per hour, and Betty is driving a car leaving Montreal at 2 p.m., traveling at 110 kilometers per hour, what does 2 plus 2 equal? Well, 4, right? Always equals 4. That's what I love about math, the certainty of it, right? But objective truth, this, this uh, certainty of truth, is not limited just to the math and sciences. It's in other disciplines, for example, in history. Uh, again, for example, uh, although it may feel like it's never happened, the Toronto Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup in 1967. They did. I'm, I'm, I'm honest. I mean, there's, there's photography, there's photo evidence, there's video evidence. There's even eyewitness testimony. People like my dad who witnessed the, the parade and everything. So it, it happened. That is a historical truth and it's not subject to anyone's opinion. Now, you could argue that they weren't the best team that year, that, that there was another team that's a, that was better. And that, that would be open to argument because that would now be an opinion and an opinion is not fact. Opinion is an interpretation or misinterpretation of the facts available. And that's, that's not to undermine uh, the value of an opinion or even to swing to an extreme that only things that are objective are important. Uh, because the reality is we would miss out on beauty and, and art and, and emotion because so much of that isn't objective, it's subjective. But we do need to understand the distinction between the two. And this, I think this difference is really important because within our culture, there's this constant arguing going on about the nature of truth. Some would argue that there's, there's never an absolute truth, that all truth is relative, which I always think is funny because it's an absolute statement when they make that statement, right? But nonetheless, there's this idea that my truth can somehow differ from your truth, and yet we'd still be both truthful. And, and if, it's a, if it's a matter of truth, it's simply just not possible. Because it's not talking about truth in that moment, it's talking about opinion. And I think our world would be a lot calmer if we understood and recognized the differences of that. That just because you have an opinion, which is a good thing, by the way, I'm all for having an opinion, but that opinion doesn't mean that it's the truth. Now, this kind of thinking, though, is, is called uh, relativism. And it's a, a type of philosophy, and it's been around for a long time, and I suspect it's going to be around for a long time going forward. It goes all the way back to an ancient Greek philosopher, philosopher, there's the word I was looking for, uh, before Socrates. And his name was, Pro, um, I practice again, right? I, get, I think I just freaked myself out. Protagonist, that was his name. And he made, he made this statement. He says, man is the measure of all things. That's an interesting statement. Man is the measure of all things. When I, when I found that, suddenly everything clicked into place, right? Man is the measure of all things means that man, that, that individual's personal opinion becomes truth. 
And since everyone has an opinion, like a particular body part, as the old saying goes, everyone is entitled to their own truth, therefore. But here's the problem. Man is the measure of all things, puts man at the top of creation. And it's that same thinking that led, led man to believe that the earth was the center of not just our solar system, but the whole universe, that everything rotated about planet earth, because we were at the center of all that. But we now know that the solar system doesn't rotate around the earth, it rotates around the sun. And you see, as amazing as mankind is, as amazing as creation is, I mean, think about how complex and how beautiful the human body is. It's incredibly complex, but it's designed. It's still part of creation. It it's can't be, it's too small to be the measure of all things. Instead, the measure of all things belongs to the person of Jesus Christ, belongs to the creator. Which is why in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the, I'm the truth. Claims to be the truth. More than just, I'm telling you the truth, or I know about the truth. I am the truth. Jesus is saying, I am the objective measure of all things. So, you might think of it this way. If the earth revolves around the sun, S-U-N, all of creation revolves around the sun, S-O-N. And so that... That means that that fact, that truth, is the unchanging person of Jesus Christ. Real truth never changes. It's objective and it's steady. And that's good news for you and I, friends. Because in John chapter 8 and 31 to 36, Jesus is telling us that if we hold to his teachings, if we hold to truth, what he says, we will be set free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. However, the, the corollary or the other side of that is if we begin to believe lies, lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about other people, lies about our situation, those lies will hold us in bondage and those lies will control us. For example, if a child grows up neglected by mom and dad, is sexually abused by a family friend, is bullied in school, rejected by their friends, that child will likely grow up and begin to form a, a, an opinion about themselves, a belief system that says things such as they're not important, that they're, they're going to be used by other people, and, and that's okay. And, and forget about being loved because they're not lovable. And so with all these messages of shame, these messages of disgust and inadequacy and, and condemnation constantly running through their minds, how do you think they're going to live? They're going to do whatever it takes to protect themselves. They're going to throw themselves at anyone that would offer them just the smallest amount of love, just the smallest degree of hope. They'll do whatever it takes to maintain it. And they're so desperate because of what they believe about themselves. Because what you believe determines the choices that we make. And so think about it now. We live in this world. We live in this world that is constantly attacking us, constantly beating us up, constantly shaming us, constantly reminding you of your past failures, your past abuse, and over and over again repeating these lies about what others think. What, what, would, they, what would they say if they knew about that? What would they do if you did this? What if they, what if they ever found out about the truth about you? And, and so it's critical, it's absolutely crucial that we know what is truth. What is it that Jesus says about us? It's why Paul keeps coming back to our identity in Christ, who you really are 
as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. And we need to learn to hold to the objective truth of what God says, the God-defined truth of who you are. Not the opinion that you formed, not what you believe, not what others say, not what your circumstances have said, not how you've interpreted life's events. What does God say? And learning to hold on to that. And that, friends, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And so I really hope that you can see the beauty of the truth that God's done so we can experience freedom. So let's read our passage together. We're going to look at Ephesians 4. Uh, We're going to focus in on verses 20 to 24, but we're going to start in verse 17 where we looked at last week because really it's a continuation of what we looked at last week. So beginning in verse 17, Paul says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened by their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're the one that sets us free, that it's not coming from our hard work and our dedication you, you do the work. What you ask of us is that we would simply believe it, that we would place our trust in you and what you've done and what you say more than anything else. And, and this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that, that you would be the teacher, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to what is truth, not, not just what we feel. Beyond that, we would see the objective truth, the, the real truth, of what you've done, and we would hold on to that and experience the freedom that you've purchased for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can trust you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, last time, we, like you said, we focus on verses 17 to 19, and there Paul is telling us to not live or walk like the world, and, and the world being those who don't have Jesus, and where he's saying don't live like them. And and he explained it really in three parts we saw, right? And so he started off talking about the state of the world without God and how they were walking in the futility of their mind. They were were ignorant or or blinded by the darkness of their condition. And because, and here's the most damning part of it all, it was their nature. Their nature was excluded. Their life was excluded from the person and life of Jesus Christ. And, and because they didn't have Jesus in them, they didn't have life in them. They were excluded from his life. And as, in essence, you could say those who don't, don't have Jesus in them are the, are the walking dead because they're, they're empty on the inside. And then he said why they're in this state is because ultimately they choose to be there. They're ignorant to their situation, but they're also hardened their hearts towards God. And so someone is there not because of anyone else's fault but their own. They're choosing to be there because they've chosen to reject God's gift and God's salvation. 
And that led then to the, the third part of Paul's explanation, which is because of that, because they, they don't have a life of God, because they're walking in the futility of their mind, now they got to find life in this world. And they're going to live according to the flesh. They're going to live according to the, what this world has to offer. And they're going to do everything they can, trying to find hope, trying to find meaning, trying to find happiness and joy in this world. And, and so that's where, really, you know, you think about the, the, that saying YOLO, right? You only live once comes from this idea, where it's simply all about you need to do what you got to do to make sure you're taken care of, to make sure that you're satisfied, you're filled up. And the problem is this world can't satisfy. So no matter what you do, how many things you cross off in your bucket list, it's still empty. It's not enough. And, and so that's why he talked about this idea of, of pursuing his sensuality with greediness. It's just, it's just, I always have to have more, always have to have more. In essence, it's, it's drinking salt water, hoping it's going to quench your thirst. But it never works. It just leaves you more thirsty. And so that was verses 17 to 19. That was the negative. But now Paul wants to contrast that, beginning in verse 20, with the positive. So don't live like the world. Don't walk like the world. Instead, we can live and walk in a new way. So beginning in verse 20, Paul says, But you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Now, that phrase, you did not learn Jesus, um, really what that's talking about here is this idea is that it's contrasted with the word ignorance. Right, So you saw earlier there in, in verse, I think it was verse 18, talking about the ignorance of the unbeliever. He's saying, but you didn't learn Christ this way. And so the, the, the idea here is more than just learning about. It's more than just about having facts that you can recite about Jesus. It carries the idea of, of coming to a place of knowing, of believing, of receiving. And, and most importantly, I think submitting yourself to him that God would have rule over your life. In, in essence, Paul's saying here is that you didn't come to Jesus and, and receive his gift of salvation by pursuing the ways of this world. That's not how it worked. It wasn't about, you know, being self-centered and trying to find everything you can in this world. It was coming to the conclusion this world can't be enough. And then we come to Jesus. And so this idea we've learned uh, who he is and what he's offered to us. And that if indeed is really a since. It's, it, it's not a question as much as, it's a guarantee since you've heard him, since, since you've come to, to, to come to been taught in him. So, so why is all this important? Well, it's important because Paul's trying to teach us here that you can't live in both worlds. You, you can't have Jesus and still try to fit in this world. It's sort of like trying to eat my cake and have it too. You, you, you can't have it both ways. You see, this kind of thinking, I think, is, is best described as a you picture this way, that you're standing on a dock with one foot, and you got one foot in the boat, and the boat's not attached to the dock. And so what's going to happen eventually is that boat's going to begin to float away from the dock. And you know how that ends is, is you're going to end up wet. You're going to end up cold. You need to pick one. You can't straddle both. And, and so as long as we're, we got one foot in the world and we're trying to have one foot in Jesus, it's not going to work. And so coming to Jesus is one of fully submitting, fully embracing, fully offering ourselves to him. And, and that allows us now to, to experience all that he has for us. Now, 
as I was studying this passage, I was observing, I thought it was interesting that at the end of verse 21, Paul says this phrase, because just as truth is in Jesus. And then at the end of verse 24, he finishes a statement of with of the truth. And so there's this idea at the beginning and the end of, of, of the truth. Uh, and, and so it's, I almost picture it this way, that there's a bit of a truth bomb here, a bit of a truth sandwich, where in the center of these two phrases, Paul's going to deliver this incredible, this profound truth. And so really, it's, it's really, really important that we understand and study what Paul's talking about. So let's take a look at the meat of this true sandwich, right? So he ends up with seeing that the truth is in Jesus. And then beginning in verse 22, he says, here it is. This is the truth that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. All right. This passage is not nearly as clear as, as we would hope. And, and really what it's led to is, is two competing different interpretations of what Paul's really trying to say. So we're going to look at the two. Uh, we're going to look at the first one. Uh, is is this idea that it's instructive, and the second one saying that Paul's basically he's being informative. So let's take a look at the inf- instructive one and and put it kind of to the test to see does that one make sense. So the instructive one is basically here the interpretation that Paul is is giving a command. He's commanding you and I to lay aside the old self that we need to die each day regularly because the old self is still around. And so we need to put him to death. He's sort of like a, a villain in a bad movie that no matter how many times you think he's gone, he comes back the next day. And so this idea of Paul saying is every day, repeatedly, got to put to death the old man because he's constantly corrupting things. And there you need to then, you know, raise up the new person and everything will be okay. And, and that thought of dying to self or dying daily is, is common and rampant throughout the church. In fact, I, I was listening to a podcast just yesterday and listening to two pastors go back and forth. And, and the one pastor made this comment is, is absolutely obvious, it's clear that we're still just sinners and the old self is still around and we still need to die to self every day and there's old nature's around, it's just not going anywhere. And so that is, I would say, the, the most common view within the church. But I don't think it's right. I don't think it's correct. And there's, there's a few reasons why. So we're going to take a look at those reasons. So reasons number one is that those verbs, lay aside and put on, they're simply not commands. So what do I mean by that? Because they sure do look like commands, right, in our English language, but they're not commands. And I say that because we need to go begin and take a, take a deeper look at the Greek, understand the grammar a little bit. And and I'm a little hesitant because I don't want us to think, well, we can't trust our English Bibles, we can't trust our English translations, but there is sometimes great value in being able to study the Greek in either the original words or the original language because you begin to discover so much more. And I think this is one of those times there. And so in grammar, uh, specifically when we're talking about verbs, there's a tense to a verb, right? We have, in the English, we have past, present, and future tense. Those are the main ones. But there's also something with a verb called mood. And, and a mood can come in four different forms. It can be an indicative mood. 
And so the indicative mood is talking about something that is, is a fact. It's a guarantee. Then you have something which is called the subjunctive mood. And, and that's something that may or may not happen. We're not quite sure. Then you have something called the imperative, which is a command. And then you have something called the infinitive, which is expressing an action, but it isn't specific to the reference of the subject. Meaning we don't know exactly when it happened or, or, or not. So why is that all significant and important here? Well, in this passage, Paul's not using the imperative mood on those verbs to lay aside or to put on. He's not giving us a command. He's not telling us something to do. Instead, he's using the infinitive tense, which means we don't know the reference of the time it took place on its own. We need to do a little bit more study. So that's one part of it. That's one reason. Here's the second reason why I don't think it holds up is that Paul's not giving us an ongoing action. So it's not just not only command, but the passage lay aside and put on is not meant to be repetitive at one time. Why do I say that? Well, again, looking at the grammar of that, the verb on lay aside and put on is, is in the aorist tense. Now, the English doesn't quite have an aorist tense. Again, we have the past, present, future. In, in the Greek, they got many different tenses, but the one in particular I think is significant, or two that's relative here, there is the present tense, which would be something that's ongoing. And then we have the aorist tense, and the aorist tense is something that is, is punctiliar in, in, its, in its nature, meaning it's a simple action. It happens, and it's a completed action. So why is that significant? Well, if this was something to be ongoing, that we need to continue to lay aside the old self and continue to put on the new self, then Paul would have given it in the present tense. But instead, he gave it in the aorist tense which means it's a simple action. It's done. It's a completed action. And so it's not an ongoing thing. So he's not giving us a command. He's not telling us to do it repeatedly. Here's the third reason why I don't think that that idea that we constantly need to die to self holds up is because it conflicts with so many other passages. You see, it's really important to understand that all Scripture needs to agree with itself. Theologians call that the analogy of Scripture. It's meaning that, that what Paul says in Ephesians can't contradict what he says in Romans or Galatians or even in other parts of Ephesians. It all has to add up. And so what you can do is you can interpret Scripture with other parts of Scripture. Or you can test what conclusions you come with, up to, with against other parts of Scripture. So here's an example. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Paul says this, knowing this, these are the facts. This is the truth he's saying. That our old self, our old man, same words that Paul uses in Ephesians, was crucified with him. Again, the verb tense on crucify was the aorist, meaning it was a simple action. And here, we actually even know when it took place because we were crucified with him, with Jesus. Meaning when Jesus died on that cross, you and I were crucified with him. In fact, in verse 4 of Romans 6, he says that we are buried with him at the same time. Listen, you don't bury someone that's in the process of dying. You bury someone that has already died. So why is that significant? Because it means we don't need to keep on dying. It's not something we need to repeatedly do. It's not something that is ongoing. It's already took place. See, think about it. If you're still dying, then Jesus would still be dying because we were crucified with him. Or if you need to die daily, then Jesus would have to die daily. Well, how many times did he have to die? Only one time. How many times do you and I have to die? 
only one time. Which means it's done. It's finished. That, this is actually made more clear, I think, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I say it's even more clear here because the word, the verb tense here on crucified, Paul doesn't use the aorist tense this time. This time he uses the perfect tense. Now, what is a perfect tense? The perfect tense is something that happens in the past that has ongoing abiding results. Let me give you an example. I can say that I was married on May 24th, 2003, and I am married. Meaning that something happened in the past. I was married on that day and has ongoing abiding results. Great results, by the way. Just, just putting that one out there. But it has ongoing results. That's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians 2.20. Is that he says, basically, we could better translate that verse as, I was and still am crucified with Christ. I was crucified with him on that cross and it has abiding results to this day right now. I am still the old self crucified with him. That old self no longer lives, gone. But Christ now lives in me, a brand new person, a brand new creation. Remember, Paul is giving us the truth. This is, this is the truth bomb or the truth sandwich that cannot be dismissed. It cannot be de debated. And yet when I share this with people, I often, I often hear from them this, this response. Sure doesn't feel like the old self's dead. Sure doesn't feel like they're gone. In fact, it, it feels the opposite. It feels like they're still hanging around. It feels like they're, they're, they keep coming back. And I, I, it feels like I got to keep putting them to death over and over again. Well, to understand what's happening, I think it's really important to understand some, and define some terms. Because we've... We've, what's happened in the church is we've confused, we've conflated a couple terms, and that's led to all this confusion. So let's define some terms. Old self, old man, they're synonymous here. And, and what that's referring to is who you and I were in, in Adam before salvation, who you were when you arrived here on planet Earth. It's, it's that person that was born with an evil heart, that was separated from God, that was the, the walking dead, that was opposed to God in his ways. That's who you were, the sinner. That's who died. That person was crucified with Jesus Christ. That sinner was crucified and buried and no longer lives. That person's not coming back ever. It was a one-time thing. But what's happened is we've confused the old self with another term called the flesh, or sometimes referred to as indwelling sin. And they're not the same thing. The flesh was the old master. It's, it's what controlled us. It's what dominated us. But it's not your sinful nature. And that's the problem, that, that some Bibles used to translate the word flesh as sinful nature, and that's what caused all the confusion. The reality is the flesh is not you. It's not your nature. It's your enemy, your old master. And the flesh or indwelling sin did not die. It's still around. It's still in you. But here's the great news. It's not you. That was the great discovery Paul came to in Romans 7, where he says, I see now this principle of evil that's in me, but not me, because I'm the one that's wanting to do good, but I'm not doing it. And so your nature is good because you're born again. You're a new person. You're entirely a new self. That's who you are. 
And so now we can begin to understand what Paul's trying to do in this passage. It's not instructive. He's not commanding or telling us to repeatedly lay aside, kill, crucify the old you, put on the new you, get born again each and every day. That's not what he's telling us to do. Instead, the passage is informative. He's informing you. He's revealing what's true. He's telling you who you are. Remember, it's all about what's true what God has already done for us. Because remember the context of the passage. The whole passage is all about how we live, how we walk. And we're, we're called to walk in this way because of who we are now, because of this wonderful truth. Now, we could substantiate this passage now by looking at a parallel passage. So there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 that I think is clear. And, and really, the, if you compare the two passages, they're pretty much identical. The, 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 the tone, the theme, the, the purpose that Paul's writing in Ephesians, he's writing it similarly in Colossians, but you'll notice it's a lot clearer. So in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10, again, teaching us not to live like the world, but to live lives of integrity, he says, do not lie to one another. Since, because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see the parallel that we see here in Ephesians chapter 4? Again, it's not a command. It's since you have, since the old self has been crucified and buried, no longer lives. It's not who you are. Since you have already been born again, since you already have the new self in you, that's who you are. Live that way. Hold to that truth. That's what he's trying to teach us here. And notice at the end of verse 10 there, it talked about being in the image of, of the one who created us. And, and then in Ephesians 4, it talks about how that we're, we're made in the likeness of God, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Did you catch that? That the new you, the real you, who you are right now, who you are today, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what's happened to you, who you really are, the absolute, true, objective, most true, most real thing about you as a believer in Jesus, that you've been born again, made in the likeness of God, with His righteousness, with His holiness. Meaning you can't get any more righteous, you can't get any more holy, because He's given to you His righteousness and His holiness as a gift. He didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. And you don't always believe it. You don't always act on it. But it does not change who you are. That's the facts. That's the reality of it. That's the truth. Again, we used the illustration last week about if I act like a dog, it does not change the fact that I'm a male, I'm a human. That's who I am. Nothing can change that. That is absolute. And so it's so important that we begin to understand and accept since you're in Christ, the old is gone. You're a new person, a new creation in Christ. It sounds so simple, right? So why is it so hard to believe? Why is it so hard to accept that? Why is it so hard to actually trust in that? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to our passage. In, in verse 22, Paul talks about being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. What is he talking about here? 
Well, he's referring to how the flesh or indwelling sin, and remember, the flesh is not your old man. It's not the old you. It's your old master that didn't die, but is presently, and that's the verb he's using here on the corrupted, presently is corrupting our thinking. And that's a, it's such a beautiful picture of it. He's taking what's true of who you are and he's corrupting it. He's degrading it. He's, he's slandering it. Instead, now what he's doing is he's replacing it with lies. He's whispering lies. The flesh is constantly whispering lies about, about who God is. But what God thinks of you, is God trustworthy? Has he let you down? Has he failed you? Is he disgusted by you? Is he put off by you? Is he angry? Is he, is he disappointed with you? Or is he punishing you because of your past? All of those lies are coming from the flesh. And anytime you have a thought that is contrary to who Jesus is, you know where it's coming from. It's coming from the flesh. Or, or the flesh will lie to you about who you are. It will, it will tell you things such as what you're going through, these difficulties, because you deserve it. That, that you're all alone. Nobody can love you. Or it lies about everyone else. It'll be comparing you to other people and telling you how they seem to have figured out what's your problem. Why can't you get, get it all this together? And, and, and it'll, maybe it'll talk about the other way with pride and how, how you're better than everyone else and, and how, you know, puff you up in that way. Whatever it is, the flesh is going to lie to you to get your eyes off of God and what he has done and onto you and what you need to do to somehow get better. And that's constantly happening. I, I, wish, I wish we could put on these spiritual glasses that would allow us to see the spiritual realm because you would suddenly see the flesh right up in your face. Now, it's not outside you. It's in you. Again, it's not you, but it's residing inside of you, waging war with our mind, it says in Romans 7, attacking our mind, trying to control us, trying to dominate us by constantly lying to us. That's presently happening. But look how he contrasts that, right? Because this is a passage of contrast. He contrasted the lay aside the old self with contrasting with putting on the new self, which has already happened. And now he's contrasting with the presently being corrupted by the flesh lying to us. He's going to contrast this with this phrase here in verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, we don't have all the time to go into the, the grammar of this passage, but this is something really critical here, and I want to I want to make sure that we catch it. Um, but let's kind of simplify, because I think there's another way that would be better translating this passage. And a better translation of the passage would be this. You is to be renewed by the Spirit in your mind. Now, I recognize that that's really bad grammar, okay? I'm an engineer, but even I recognize that's really bad grammar. But... I think it better describes what Paul's trying to say. So let's kind of break that down, what, what, he's, what he's getting at here. So I say you is, the word is there, is because it is a present tense. It's an ongoing thing. But it's you is to be renewed. And the idea here, and that word renewed, it's present tense, but it's also passive. And, and what that tells us is that it's being done to us. It's not something that we're doing ourselves. It's not something we're doing to others. It's something that's being done to us. So you are presently being renewed. 
you is to be renewed by the Spirit. Now, there's some debate here about is it the Holy Spirit or is it your spirit? I think it's pretty clear. I think it's the Holy Spirit here. And the reason is because the, the noun there is the dative, and that means it's the means by which this is happening. The means by which you are being renewed is done by the capital S, Holy Spirit. Meaning this is the work the Holy Spirit is doing in you. So you is to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, where? In your mind. The battle's up here. Who will you believe? Who will you trust? Who will you listen to? Will you listen to the, the ongoing onslaught of lies of the flesh? Which, to be honest, feel true. They feel more accurate. But your feelings aren't a great indicator of what's true. See, what's true is what God says. Not what you feel. Not, not what you think even. Not what others say. It's what God says. What God says is this incredible truth that the old you's gone. You're a new person today, holy and righteous. That's the truth, made in the image of your Father. Perfect. Even though you don't act perfectly, you are perfect. That's who you are. That's the real you. And will you hold to that teaching Jesus is saying? Will you simply receive it? Will you trust me? Essentially, this is the application for the morning. This is what I want you to hold on to. Don't listen to our enemy. The liar attacks, he condemns, and he shames. But don't listen to him. Instead, listen to, believe, trust. Put all of the chips, put all of your faith, grab hold of who Jesus says you are. That's the truth, and that's the truth that sets you free. And, and it's not easy. I mean, it's simple, it's simple concept, but it's not simple to apply. It's hard to pull, to, to remember that. When shame is screaming at you, when the flesh is screaming at you, and your feelings are just, just over and over again, and maybe your circumstances back up what the flesh is saying. People are rejecting you. People are, are abandoning you. You're all alone because you're, you're all alone. You're just alone in your apartment. And in that moment, the flesh is telling you you're all alone. But in that moment, Jesus is saying, will you trust me? Will you lean into what I'm saying that you're not alone, that you're not worthless? I love you. And I've got, I've got great, wonderful things planned for you. I've got hope. I've got a future. My joy is available to you. Will you lean into it right now? Because if you hold to that truth, you hold to that teaching, you are experiencing that renewal of our mind. And no matter what storm you're going through, Jesus is greater than it. Jesus is bigger than it. We talked about in, in previous uh, messages about this idea that for this I have Jesus. That no matter what I'm facing, Jesus is in me. Another way to put it, everything is better with Jesus. And it's that constant reminder, constant trusting, constant renewing of our mind towards that. That's, that's how we live the Christian life. That's what's so critical. The battle's not out here. The battle is in our mind. Who will I listen to? Who will I trust? Well, this, this is so important. It's so critical. I want to read a couple more passages before we close. And, and I want you to listen to, as we read these passages, in light of what we've talked about. 
And hopefully you'll begin to see how Paul's repeating himself over and over again in many times in many letters, trying to drive home this point. So the first passage we want to look at is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, I urge you. Can you, can you hear the intensity in his voice here? I urge you. I appeal to you. Please do this, brethren. Beloved, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Really quickly, what does that mean? You're alive from the dead. You're a new person. You're holy. And you're acceptable to God. That's who you are. So present yourself as that new person, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is how we worship God. Here I am, God. What do you want to do? And do not be conformed to this world. You see the pattern that we saw in Ephesians 4, the similarity here. Don't be conformed. Don't walk like them in the futility of their mind, in their ignorance, in their blindness. They're excluded from the life of God. Don't live like them. Why not? Because we have the life of God. So don't be conformed that way, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how we're going to be transformed. That's how we're going to begin to, to experience the freedom this ongoing transformation, this metamorphosis that's happening as we're holding to what Jesus says in our mind, as we're beginning to put more faith in what he says. And that takes time, and that's okay. That's the journey we're all growing up in. That's the maturing that takes place. Where we're putting more and more faith in who we are in Jesus. And, and the results and the freedom of that is beautiful. One more passage, Colossians chapter 3. Being in verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, since you have been raised up, really, that's not an if. It's not an iffy if. It's a since you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on what God is doing and what He's done. Set your mind on His truth, not the things of this earth. Not what this world says about you. Not what the flesh says. Why? For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're a new creation. I am, I'm a new person now. Christ and Ross. And I need to hold to that truth. I need to believe that truth. And when I believe that truth, nothing can stop me. Well, you're Christ and Marco. I know you're going through a different difficult time right now, Marco, but, but Christ in you is sufficient. It doesn't mean all the difficulty is going to disappear. But He will supply what you need. And so trust Him through this time. And, and you're Christ and Cat. And Cat, you're going through your own set of difficulties right now. But you're a new person, not alone, loved and accepted. And Christ in you is enough. And so that's what we're holding on to. That's what we're learning to rely upon. And when we do, we hold to that truth. When we hold to what's real, we find victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that it's finished. And it sounds, sounds too simple. It sounds too good to be true, which is why we, we often put it aside and, and ignore it. But Father, would you, would you through your Holy Spirit convict us of this truth? Convict us of who we are and what you've done on the cross. Convince us 
that we're free. That we don't have to listen to the flesh anymore. We don't have to listen to its lies about who we are and who you are. Instead, would you, would you reveal yourself in such a way that we choose now, we hold to your teachings, we hold to the truth, we live and walk in freedom. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.